Hi, I'm Jeff Bova, producer, arranger, keyboardist. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Eddie Martinez, guitarist to the stars. His credits include Robert Palmer, Mick Jagger, David Lee Roth, Steve Winwood, Yoko Ono, Celine Dion, Shaka Khan, Tina Turner, and Run DMC. How about that? He also performed at Live Aid with Mick Jagger and with Tina Turner. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Eddie and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of his best works. You'll hear some of it. We'll talk about it. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance... I have chosen my song called Take Me from the album PGS7 by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, Eddie's got a Latin heritage and Take Me has got that Latin thing going on with my Latin bandmates in Project Grand Slam. So I thought that it worked. So Eddie Martinez, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. It's great to be here with you and chatting about things, so all things music and life. Exactly. You know, listen, as soon as I knew that you were going to be on, I got excited for one reason in particular. You're a New York guy, just like me. You were born in Queens, weren't you? Yeah, I was born in Ozone Park and then lived in Hollis. And who knew that, you know, in the 80s, the, you know, Run DMC came from the neighborhood that I ostensibly lived in when I was just a little kid, like, you know, eight or nine years old, and moved to the city around nine years old. Isn't that amazing? Well, I have to say, you know, I grew up in Queens myself a little bit earlier than you, but it is interesting when you look into your hometown, how many different people, different artists, different, you know, walks of life come out of these different neighborhoods, isn't it? It's extraordinary. When I think about this thing has a whole circuitous kind of vibe to it, for lack of a better phrase, in that I was from Queens, then I moved to the Bronx, and then the first series band that I was in uh, at around 17, 18 years old was a band called Mother Night, and they rehearsed in the Jamaica Ozone Park area. So I was going back to the neighborhood that I grew going up in. Going back to Queens, huh? Yeah, in Queens, it's amazing. So many great players come out of there. You know, I mean, Lenny White and Marcus Miller, Barry Johnson. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You know, Val Burke, Arnold Ramsey. There's so many great local musicians and, and musicians that have gone to extraordinary things as well. Oh, you're right about that. All right, what was the first kind of music that you got into? Well, you know, I'm like so many other 
people that, you know, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, it, it just, I mean, something happened, you know, so I, I heard that there's something, uh, I think to put it in perspective for me, I think I've always had, even before I really knew I wanted to be a musician, I, I, I would be able to listen to something and I'd be able to discern that this is complex the harmonies, there's just something really sophisticated or, or it was something kind of like really kind of ordinary. I was able to feel that, you know? And so when I think about that and, and then the Beatles, the Beatles just to me was an explosion of something, something so different from the standard pop structure, harmonically, they wrote their music, they performed their music. There's something so fundamentally kind of important. It was really kind of a pivot where, where artists, were composers and performers as well. I had so many musicians on this show, and just like them and you, the world changed for so many of us when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan on that night, February 1964. It's remarkable how many careers basically got started because of that one event. Oh, yeah. It was, it was something so fresh for me. For my ears, I heard something different. I heard something different harmonically. I heard something really different in how they were voicing their harmonies and just how they how they arranged their music for a four-piece band. It was just really just it was it was fresh. And you heard a lot of girls screaming for them too. Yeah, you had to hear through that. I mean, that's kind of like <laughs> that's a, that's a lore as well, you know. <laughs> you bet. You bet. Now listen, did you play guitar at that time or did you learn the guitar afterwards? Tell me about that. Oh, wow. The evolution was was really interesting. Um, growing up on East 163rd Street, we didn't have, you know, we come from humble beginnings uh, when I think about it, you know. Uh, and um, I took a bedboard, like a, a plank that's under the board, and I, and I made these imaginary fret markers. And I started, like, miming Paul McCartney. <laughs> you know, so I actually I played bass before I actually played uh, guitar professionally. And uh, I, I was a singer even before I was a bassist or a guitarist. Uh, so that was my evolution. Wow. So usually people go the other way around. You know, I started out, I've told this story before in the podcast. I started out playing piano and I hated piano. My parents made me do it when I was about five. Then I switched to trumpet because my father played the trumpet. Mm -hmm. And when the Beatles came out and, you know, we saw what rock and roll bands were made up of. I started to play the bass because my friends were learning. They were struggling to play the guitar. And I already knew the treble clef from the trumpet. So you went, you went the other way around. You started on the bass and switched to the guitar. Yeah, I did. And at, in junior high school, I was also playing French horn. You know, so that was a whole other track. I still love the French horn. I just love the, the tone and how it complements a whole brass section. It's just really extraordinary. I'm with you on that one. I love the French horn. And tell me about this. Why is it that when people play the French horn, they put their hand, the fist, inside you know, the bell of the horn? How did that come about? I think it's actually to kind of round the sound out or mute it to a certain degree, uh, maybe to get a blend uh, with, with the orchestra, I would imagine. Um, uh, there's a function for that. And I think it's actually to round it out or kind of control Control, it's like, you know, ostensibly it could be, you know, a volume control for a, for a French horn. You know? It's very cool to watch it as well as to listen to it, I have to say. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. So did you play the, the French horn throughout, you know, high school and all of that in the, in the band, the orchestra, etc.? No, I didn't. I, uh, I In junior high school, I played French horn a bit, and then I switched to trumpet for a bit. Another trumpet player. 
And then, you know, I was just like a smart ass and I was making fart sounds with the trumpet and my music teacher didn't like it. So he put me on bass drum. (laughs) (laughs) So I was in the back banging the bass drum. Oh, man. He was wild, this music teacher. He was kind of, he was kind of mashugging the man. The guy was like, uh, you know, you know, uh, off the rails a bit. Isn't that crazy? All right. I want to hear about your career because you've played with, it sounds like, everybody in the entire world. How did you get into this who's who of rock musicians? Wow. You know what? I, wow. When I really think about it, let's see. The first band that I was in that had, that got a record deal was this band, Mother Night. We signed to Columbia Records. And I remember sitting in Clive Davis's office when I was around 19 years old and we had signed. And it doesn't mean that you've made it. You know, just because you have a record deal, but it was our first endeavor into playing and recording music. So um, that band disbanded a couple of years later. And uh, then I just started doing freelance work. And then I, I uh, the first kind of notable gig that I that I got was with LaBelle, uh, with Patty LaBelle, Nona Hendrix and Sarah Dash. And uh, we toured all over about a year and a half. And then the girls disbanded. And then I went to work with Nona because she was doing her solo album. And that was going to be that was more of a, a rock flavored thing. So that was the beginning of it. But then after all those kind of tours, because I toured with a lot of different artists, LaBelle, and I toured with Stanley Clark and George Duke and toured with Blondie and, uh, you know, a, a bunch of different people. So in the early 80s, I made a decision that I just really wanted to kind of crack the studio scene because I'd done some work in studio, but I really wanted to, you know, crack that proverbial kind of wall that happens because you know these these scenes at that time were very kind of cliquish and they were kind of like domains that you know it was really difficult for a new young blood kind of uh, person coming in on the scene to kind of break into but fortunately i got my break in around 83 with bernard edwards the bassist from sheep and i worked on his first solo album and then uh he started using me on a lot of different projects through the years. I and mean, we worked on a lot of great records, Robert Palmer's uh, Riptide album, you know, and uh, several other uh, recordings. And, oh, my gosh, it goes on, you know, Joe Cocker, you know, on and on. And um, uh, working with Bernard was extraordinary because he was really, uh, not only was he a brilliant musician, because he always cut to the chase. He was a minimalist in a lot of ways uh, in terms of production. He really wanted to get down to what a song was about and really distill it to its purest essence. And he was funny as hell to work with and record with. And he gave you a lot of uh, freedom, you know, in terms of creativity. So it was a perfect, it was a perfect uh, thing for me, a, a situation for me to learn because uh, everybody learned a lot from uh, watching his methods of recording. Well, you're right that that whole studio scene was kind of clickish back then, probably still clickish these days as well. Guys that get into it, they just tend to get hired again and again and again. And it's not so easy to break in. You got to really have the, the right chops and you got to know the right people, don't you? Yeah, you do. I think I came around at a time where it was really, um, it, I think it was a pivotal time in terms of, of how music was changing. And I think I uh, I really, I, I, I was visualizing this. I really wanted to play on records. It was something that I was really focused on. Uh, Robert, I really wanted to play on records. I didn't want to play in the clubs doing six sets a night, which I had done as a teenager. I just didn't want that to be the rest of my life. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to play on records and have other people play my riffs in clubs. So that was that was the method to my madness. But I was uh, I was really determined 
and I was focused on 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 achieving that. And, and you know, when you have that kind of attention and focus to it, sometimes you really attract these things. You know, you, you can attract that, especially if your your mindset is focused on that and all the possibilities that are out there. And uh, that's what I, 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 I tell, you know, youngsters that are starting out is, you know, work really hard and visualize the ideal. No, you're right about that. You have to visualize first. All right. But somewhere in the middle of the 1980s, you went against the grain because you performed at Live Aid. Okay. That was not exactly doing six sets at a club. That was doing one gigantic set and a gigantic worldwide audience with none other than Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. Tell us about that. Yeah, I had worked on Mick's first solo album, which got extraordinary press. It was really, you know, his first solo album. And there was a lot of press on that. And I'd, I'd, I'd gotten a call from Bill Laswell, uh, the bassist. He was producing uh, Mick's album down in the Bahamas. And I was asked if I could come down, like, you know, they wanted me down the next day. So I flew down. I was able to, to get down there the next day and uh, it recorded with Sly and Robbie and uh, Mick Jagger and Michael Shreve and Tom Peterson. And, uh, oh, gosh, uh, you know, it's just a, a, a great, a great group of musicians. And we just there's so much in the can that hasn't been released, to be honest with you, that, you know, was part of those uh, recordings. Yeah, but I, I, I happen to work with just about every rhythm section, uh, you know, that that uh, partook on that uh, album. So it was really a, a really extraordinary experience. And so when Live Aid came about, Mick called me up and asked me if I'd, you know, supplement the whole, uh, whole and Oats band, you know, uh, to play a couple of, you know, some tunes from his solo album. I think we did this tune called Lonely, Lonely at the Top and uh, some of the, some of the Stones tunes. And uh, yeah, so I joined my buddy G.E. Smith, you know, on, on stage. And uh, it was really an extraordinary experience. The fastest 20 minutes of my life, without a doubt. It just, it was like, man, oh man, the audience was putting out such energy, Robert. It was literally matching the DBs that we were putting out on stage. It was really extraordinary. I mean, isn't that the one, the concert that was basically broadcast around the world? They were doing it from different uh, locations around the world. Am I correct? Yes, it was done from Wembley and from JFK Stadium in, in Philadelphia. We did it from JFK. Must have been an amazing experience. I'm just curious, though, when you talk about doing Mick's album, did he not call uh, Keith Richard for this? Did he leave him on the sidelines? I think they had had a parting of ways, I think, uh, temporarily. And uh, You mean one of many? Yeah, yes. <laughs> you can say that again. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous, Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. 
As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. And tell me about Tina Turner. You played with her at Live Aid as well, didn't you? I did. I did. I, I barely spoke to her. We had um, one rehearsal uh, the night before, right around dusk. It was just the stage crew in an empty stadium. And we went through the set and it was, man, it was, I said, oh my goodness, this is really, uh, it was like a jet taking off. Mick, when Mick rehearses it's 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 full on it's none of this half stepping oh, i'm just going to phone it in for rehearsal then i'll save it for the show it's always on it's always intense so it was an extraordinary rehearsal really intense and the following evening we went on around 10 30 it was just uh, explosive and um it was uh it was really it was really something else man i i i uh i think about it every once in a while and, and what an extraordinary experience it was I can only imagine. You know, one of the great things about Mick Jagger is that, I mean, he's 80 years old and he's still doing it at the highest level. He keeps himself in tremendous shape. So many rock stars, of course, that went by the wayside a long time ago, but not with him. I mean, I think he watches everything that he eats, what he does, he exercises, and that's how he can stay on that stage for a couple hours, right? Oh, yeah, man. He's he's on it. He's on it, and he's, uh, you know, he's always at just peak performance. I mean, it's it's really wonderful to see someone that's eighty years old and performing, and uh, and he's vibrating on that on that level. Well, I'll tell you one thing that must have been a lot of fun for him. You probably didn't have to perform Satisfaction when you were doing Live Aid. Am I right? <laughs> no, I didn't do that, man. You know, when these guys are all 18, 19 years old, and they come up with that first hit record, they don't realize they're going to have to play that song every day for the rest of their lives. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a trip, isn't it? In some ways, it's a blessing. You know, some people think of it as a curse in many ways. But, um, you know, uh, boy, you know, when I think about how many times I played Addicted to Love Live with Robert Palmer or Simply Irresistible, uh, those those two songs are so iconic that, I, I never really got tired of playing them. Obviously, I've been playing them as many times as the Stones played Satisfaction. So if I was still playing it now, I'd probably feel differently. All right, Eddie, that's a terrific lead into the Songfest portion because right now I'm playing underneath us Simply Irresistible with Robert Palmer, which was a massive, massive hit. And the videos were just unbelievable for the two of them that you mentioned. Tell us about that experience. Well, we, you know, uh, when I think about Addicted coming out in, uh, that was released in spring of 86. The album came out in late 85.
they've released one single called Discipline of Love. It didn't do what they expected to do. And uh, I think Bernard had really implored the record label to, to release Addicted. Addicted comes out, that blows up. They do the, the landmark video with, you know, the, the models dressed in the couture and, you know, and, and all that stuff. And then that formula led to Didn't Mean to Turn You On, which was an extraordinary hit for Robert. And then a couple of years later, or a year later, uh, maybe, yeah, 88, uh, and then Simply Irresistible comes out with the same kind of format. It became emblematic of Robert's brand uh, to a large degree. And um, I felt so good about that track, and it was so much fun to play. And when I think about it, I really got away with murder with the solo because I really took things kind of out, and it really kind of became an abstract solo that became a part of the song. I like creating solos that are a part of the song, just not blowing for the sake of blowing. Mm-hmm. I like I like it when something becomes a motif driven, that it it just really has a value that is intrinsic and really complements the song. So people are going to expect to hear that rather than just like eight bars or 16 bars that you're just kind of blowing whatever you want to play, which is fun in itself. But in terms of, of uh, pop music, I, I wanted to do something a bit more structured. But it, in its structure, it was abstract as well. Well, I agree with exactly what you just said, that one of the great things about great rock and roll songs is that when the solos fit within the context of the song, when they're memorable, as opposed to guys just playing as fast as they can or as many notes as they possibly can, just trying to impress people that way, I think it makes such a huge difference. It does. And when I think about the solo for, for Addicted to Love, that's really kind of very bluesy and it's like really kind of laid back, but it's big. And for Simply Irresistible, I wanted to do something that was, you know, contrarian. And it was kind of wacky and kooky. It was kind of like intervallic and chromatic and just all sorts of things going on. But it fit in the song. That's the good thing. It fit the song. There you go. And it's become iconic just like that song in that video. And, you, and nobody can forget those models. I'll tell you that. That was. Oh, a my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Them trying to mime the solos was really kind of funny, you know? You can imagine. All right, let's go to the second one. This is Risky. If I'm pronouncing it right, Ryuichi Sakamoto. Am I right? Yes, Ryuichi Sakamoto. And uh, he was brilliant. Uh, He passed away um, at the beginning of this year. And uh, he was a dear friend. And uh, we worked on records together. Jeff and I toured with him back in 87 and in, I think, uh, spring of 88. This is Jeff Bover you're talking about? Yes, yeah. And uh, working with Ryuichi was... It was just, um, it, it was such an extraordinary adventure. And uh, he he was also, a, a, you know, multimedia. He, he was an actor. He scored The Last Emperor, won the Academy Award for that, you know, with David Byrne. And, um, you know, so working with him was just like 
it was just a, a totally different world. And I love that. The music was really kind of, it was a, one tour that we did was called Neo Geo. And he had musicians from all over. He had a Kyoto player from Beijing and he had an Indian percussionist and he had rhythm sections from, from Queens <laughs> and had the great Bernard Fowler, you know, uh, singing. And, uh, you know, and it was just great. David Palmer from the UK. It was just an extraordinary band. And uh, Neo Geo is kind of emblematic of what where he was. He was using all different all different musics from all different geographies. And and it, it came out in such a beautiful way. Well, it's definitely an interesting thing to listen to. I'm so glad that you put that into this song. Yeah, that's the first track I've worked with him on, with uh, Iggy Pop, too. Iggy Pop. Wow, that's interesting. All right, let's go to the third one. This is Majestic. This is kind of a power rock type of thing. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's off of my solo album, Akosia, which is my wife's middle name. And that means in, in Ghana, the dialect of Twi, uh, Akosia means baby girl born on a Sunday. So I named the, the album after her. So uh, Majestic is really, the song is about, it's about, it's about judgment, about people judging others and uh, uh, passing judgment so quickly. You know, and uh, and some people are just really kind of uh, there's a level of judgment that is that that is kind of endemic that uh, people cast aspersions on on others or whatever it is, whatever you know uh, obstacles you have in your life, people are, uh, are quick to judge. And there's only one person that's judging. You know, that's upstairs. You know, and uh, so it's really about you know uh, righteous indignation. Righteous indignation. That's a phrase you don't hear too much these days. Mm -hmm. All right. What's in the future for Eddie Martinez? Well, I'm, I'm working on a, um, a mixing right now, uh, an EP that I hope to have out within a couple of months. And it's really a flashback for me because it's tracks that, I, tracks that I recorded back in the mid to late 90s. And uh, I was able to um, get the tapes back. Um, there was a, a brilliant engineer. A producer back in the 80s that was really responsible for a lot of big hits. Uh, you know, he mixed Madonna's uh, Like a Virgin album. He he recorded uh, um, Soundgarden. He recorded Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love, Power Station, the whole the whole deal. And uh, he was one of my best friends. His name was Jason Corsaro. And uh, back in the mid 90s, I went in and recorded some some tunes that I had written. And um, they just sat in his basement for years and. Uh, unfortunately, he he passed away several years ago, and uh, those tapes were sitting in his basement. And at his memorial, his his sisters gave me back the tapes, and uh, I just felt that uh, obliged to complete it. And um, went back in the studio, and I've been doing it at my leisure, and uh, and uh, you know, and uh, just about to finish these mixes. I've got three more songs that need to be mixed, and hope to put it out. I'm going to title the the uh, record elephant and it'll be an ep 
And it's just some real raw blistering rockers from the mid nineties. And, uh, you know, certain tunes that I've recorded from back then that don't hold up that I feel that just kind of sound dated, but these really kind of hold up and, and um, I'm my own worst critic when it comes to that, Robert. So I feel pretty good about these, uh, being enduring pieces. Well, that's nice to hear. You know, the, you're right. Sometimes you go back and you listen to your old stuff. And I do this too, of course, when you cringe, okay, you say, wait a minute, why did, why did I think that sounded good back then? Oh, yeah. But every now and again, you go back and listen to stuff and you say, yeah, that, that works, okay? And it worked back then as well. Oh, it did. It, it did. And that's a good feeling. Isn't it? <laughs> I totally agree with you. We have been speaking here with Eddie Martinez, who has played guitar with just about everybody in the entire world. Eddie, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Robert. This is fun. Total blast. All right. And we're going to listen now to that song that started off the podcast. It's my song called Take Me. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com.